You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Show, episode 175. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. So Aaron is back from his National Lampoon-style European vacation, surely to put our ratings in a freefall. I start this week with a brief review on the news to come out of the Fed's, or the news that came out out of the Fed's meeting in Jackson Hole. I take a look at the Q2 numbers from Snowflake, symbol S-N-O-W, on the New York Stock Exchange, a high-growth data cloud SaaS disruptor, which jumped 20% last week. Aaron hits the mailbag to answer a listener question on stock-based compensation in reference to Magnet Forensics, Inc., symbol M-A-G-T on the TSX, uh, a developer of digital investigation solutions for more than 4,000 enterprises and public safety organizations in over 100 countries. Our Your Stock, Our Take segment, Brennan will take a look at Canadian-based telehealth or telemedicine provider Relic Health Technology, symbol RHT on the TSX Venture, a former dog of the week on this show back in 2018. A listener asks us to review the stock once again, following its business model, switching to a more recurring revenue model. Finally, Brett looks at our star and dog of the week. This week's star is well-known oil and gas company ConocoPhillips, symbol COP or COP on the New York Stock Exchange. The company posted very strong Q2 numbers driven by higher energy prices. Our dog of the week is Intel Corporation, symbol INTC on the NASDAQ, best known for developing the microprocessor and the world's largest manufacturer today by revenue of semiconductor chips. It has fallen roughly 10% in the last month and 38% year to date. We'll let you know why. And Aaron will also likely speak to Intel's just announced deal with Brookfield Infrastructure, which is a company we have in coverage. So I'd like to welcome my co-host, Aaron, making his highly welcome. anticipated trip from uh, the UK back. His yeah, return. I've been getting all this feedback about the show. Things didn't work out last week. People are saying that there is just there is no chemistry. Highest uh, rated show ever. Just went by the numbers. Way downhill. And of course, Brennan so, and Brett welcoming these these guys too as well. The killer bees, <laughs> as we like to call them, yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah well, it's, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. I only only missed one week, so hopefully, you know. Tell us about your trip. There's something something we can recover here. Trip was good. So we went to uh, went to London, um, up to Scotland. Spent most of the time in Scotland, about a week and a half. Um, Glasgow managed to avoid our family in Scotland. Sky. Yes, by yeah. I, the funny thing is that Ryan. And his family were actually in Edinburgh at the same time we were in Glasgow. And those two places are about 45 minutes away, I think. They're yeah, and we close, proposed but, several yeah. meetings to you know, we Aaron, went all, but he just We went lost all the way all to the other side of the reception. world just to make sure that we never contacted each other <laughs> That's once. what we do, I yeah. know. And but, we ended uh, up no, 40 was, minutes away from each other. It was nuts. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> but no, it was, it was, it was, it was good. Um, glad to be back, you know. It was uh, a good amount of time to stay on vacation, but when you're traveling with two kids, you know, a little bit of routine is nice as well. The strangest mm-hmm. thing, of course, was driving. I did a lot of driving in Scotland, driving up to the Highlands. So, you know, driving on the, on the left-hand side of the road, on the right-hand side of the car, it's, 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 uh, it's an experience. You manage to keep, fast. keep both Yeah, you get used to it, but for the first years. hour or so, I'm driving down the highway and there's these really narrow, there's this patch of this really narrow part of the road, right? Where these, these, these windy turns and people are actually like just outcroppings on the side. Trucks are actually getting into my lane. And it's just, you know, my brain the whole time is just screaming, this is not right. Get on the other side of the road. Yeah. But, um, you know, we, I was we managed, saying so. this time you managed to keep both mirrors intact, right? You did. 
On the car? This time, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah is that actually a story? That. <laughs> he does not want to talk well, about that. This isn't the first trip where I've driven <laughs> on the left side of the road. And, and nothing you know, happened that, any other time. was either. slightly, just slightly, you know. You beat the hell out of that rental car, didn't you? No, I, I, I deny all allegations. <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. Well, let, let, let's let's get into the actual show here. Um, I didn't, I'm not going to bring up the score, but um, I, I'm going to say that uh, I forgot to tell this to uh, Brett ahead of time and Brennan, but the, the Lions did play Saskatchewan. Sask. Can you say it? What is that place called no again? Can. I can't even Saskatchewan Rough Riders. <laughs> Nobody knows what the hell it really is, but the, the, the Lions actually lost the game. I don't even know if Brennan Ooh. knows. I mean, yeah, they actually. I lost. didn't know. But so, it uh... ha- I know. <laughs> like, here's your chance to <laughs> gloat, and I'm bringing it up. It was two for three for the Lions, but I mean, it took basically an injury to our number one quarterback, and then a couple plays in, an injury to the number two quarterback, and then the Riders were able to beat them by a singular touchdown, which was. Uh, Pretty yeah. impressive. Brennan doesn't know what, That's what happens when you play the Rough Brennan. Riders. That's what yeah. happens. Brennan doesn't. Is is that cricket we're playing? What what is it? Tiddlywing. <laughs> were they playing X and O's? I don't know. Anyways, all right. So we'll give you that one, but you don't even know about it. So you when know, you say football to Brennan, he just thinks of soccer. Anyway, yeah. so. No. And then when you say no, soccer, he says, "What's that?" That's what. Who's working in right. Scotland? <laughs> yeah. I know. Yeah. So, so let, let's Ryan, talk you- about. Jackson's Hole. Are we going to talk about that? Or no, it's not Jackson's Hole. I, I got reminded yeah. by somebody in the comment. It's Jackson Hole. I apologize if I confused half the world there, but it's Jackson Hole. Uh, that's where they met. Is that correct, Brett? <laughs> I've got it correct. That is time. correct. At, at least, the, yeah, yeah. yeah I, so I at almost least... typed it about a dozen times in the title as well. So I know, I know. <laughs> it's just Jackson Hole. It's not Jackson a guy I know, a friend of mine. It's not his hole. It's Jackson hole. So there. I don't know. So what? Uh, what? What? <laughs> so, what? What happens in Jackson Hole? Uh, there's a Fed meeting every year annually. This we we reviewed that last week. You'll have to go to the shorts and 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 get into the uh, meat and potatoes behind it. But apparently, if you want to know, Aaron, we talked about this last week. But they meet there. I don't know if you know why they meet there in Jackson Hole, but they meet there because. Uh, uh, they tried to lure in, this was decades and decades ago, they tried to lure in uh, the Fed chairman, which was Volcker at the time. And apparently he had a propensity or he liked fishing, fly fishing specifically. And that area of the world was a great area for fly fishing that time of year. So they reeled him in by having the conference right next to that. And it's it's been higher than high profile ever since and uh yeah so but i mean what did they talk about what did the fed talk and about you, you consider this critical information for making wise investment decisions the <laughs> fact that it's in jackson hole yes yeah. yes it, it oh, yeah. every year you need to know why exactly the 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 intimate knowledge of what's behind that that's gonna uh, help me pick stocks <laughs> it's the only thing that'll help you pick stocks right yeah All so right. It was short and sweet, Jerome Powell's uh, speech there. I heard uh, a couple of financial commentators comment that it was shorter than the GameStop CEO's commentary on uh, their quarterly conference call, which I thought was strange because it was about a 10, what, 11-minute commentary, something in that range from Powell. Mm-hmm. I don't think I've ever heard any conference call, quarterly conference call, go shorter than 10 minutes. So I'm not really sure why we had to No, that's a call where there's literally nobody there to ask any questions. And even then, and you're saying nothing. Even You've those, got nothing looking, to say. Yeah. 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 Even those typically go 20, no, 30 the average minutes. call, yeah. the average quarterly conference call is going to be 30 minutes to 90 minutes. So it's, yeah. yeah, nobody wants to hear Powell talk for that long. So No, no. So us, uh, he kept favor. it short and sweet. And apparently still the market, like we talked, we expected it to have a hawkish tone and the market seemed to be surprised by this. Uh, the markets were down, you know, right in the wake of the speech. Um, but essentially, Chief Powell signaled that the central bank would keep raising rates to tame inflation. Um, the U.S. economy will need tight monetary policy for some time before inflation is under control. That means potentially slower growth, a weaker job market, and some pain for households and businesses. And he, he directly referenced that in his comments. So, I mean, for me, uh, I, 
I think like the ratcheting up of interest rates wasn't going to just completely stop in the last quarterly meeting. So I don't think that was much of a surprise. So the kind of rally that the markets, particularly the tech markets, the NASDAQ uh, had to me seemed to fly in the face of if you're looking at, you know, short term uh, relief from these rate uh, hikes, uh, they're still there, they're still coming and they still need to set a rather hawkish tone before uh, we can stem uh, stem inflation. Now, inflation has potentially leveled off, which is nice to see, but uh, you, you've got to break that. I, I don't think we should be up in the eight, nine percent range. I mean, that's that's unsustainable. No, I mean, it's 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 shown signs of peaking. So that's great. But now it yeah. needs to trend back down to a more reasonable level. And likely that's not going to happen because you're, we're comparing inflation now. So if you look at the last couple month over month figures, they actually look pretty good. But, um, you know, when you're comparing them year over year to, to, to the same time last year, you know, you're still comparing it to lower base. So I think we have to really get into, you know, the first, even the second quarter of 2023 before we're going to see, you know, a significant move towards what would be considered, you know, more acceptable inflation rate, like two to three percent. But I mean, that also depends on geopolitical, right? Like a lot of I think one of the reasons why the market has had rallied earlier is because people were starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, a lot of commodity prices had come down uh, in price. That there's a big pullback in in tech stocks, other sectors. So valuations, I guess, relative, were were looking better. But more recently, I think people have been reminded. Yeah, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, but the light's still pretty far down the tunnel. We're not quite there yet. So now we're starting to see some. I, I mean, I would fully expect at least two to three more rate increases before they start to level off. Um, and, you know, once inflation gets under control, which I mean, who knows for sure when that's going to happen, you know, there's a good chance then they're going to start to stimulate again and bringing rate and bring rates back down. But I, I wouldn't expect that to happen until, you know, sometime in the first half of next year. So really what people have to focus on is, you know, what kind of companies do you want to have in your portfolio in this type of environment? And then looking not, you know, what is this company going to do over the next three to six months? But what's this company going to do over the next two to three to five years, right? And there are really interesting companies in inflationary environments, like for example, Brookfield Infrastructure, which is a long time recommendation, um, very stable business, 70% of its revenues are contracted to inflation. So as inflation goes up, they get a bounce to the revenues right there. Um, and then other areas like there's there's companies in the industrial REIT space that are trading very attractively right now. Um, and in some cases, they're renewing leases at 30% premiums to expiring leases. There's been that much demand, that much rent growth. So there are a lot, there's a lot of uncertainty, obviously, still, and it's gonna this is gonna continue for the next several quarters. But a lot of companies are still putting out phenomenal results right now. And they're structured in a way that you know, they, they have the ability to continue to perform. Yeah. And we have a VIP seminar for our, uh, like our VIP clients this week. And we'll likely talk about where valuations are broadly in the market right now. And per perhaps we wouldn't be surprised to see uh, value after we've seen it, you know, the first six months of this year were uh, in terms of uh, valuations or sort of in terms of returns in the U S markets were historic, drop like a 40 year record drop over the first six months then we had a snap back in july and into august uh, i'm not surprised to see that kind of start to wane right now uh, for the fact that you know you're, you're looking at a hawkish tone from the fed you're looking at inflation where it is right now you're looking at valuations at extremely high levels and uh, they just swung back to slightly above uh what would be the the mean and and you know if you're looking forward in terms of decreased revenue growth, uh, a recession potentially, uh, you'd think that valuations would slip back below at least the average of the last 10 years. And we weren't there uh, in terms of technology for sure. So looking at some of those names, uh, there could be a pullback further. Uh, what we are doing, and when we looked at the SaaS technology sector in the US, which we like many of the businesses two to five years out, we're trying to find the businesses uh, right now that we want to buy for two to five years out. And we, you know, we have a select group of about five of them, five or six that are in that core that we like right now, but we're not diving full steam ahead into those businesses, maybe dipping your toe in, buying a 10 to 25% uh, uh, position in some of those companies. 
And we wouldn't be surprised to see a pullback in some of those names. But selecting the high quality businesses, knowing what you want to buy and then pulling the trigger over the next year to year and a half is likely what we'll be doing. So let's look at, I, I think that kind of segues into one company that uh, kind of IPO'd at the end of 2020, which is not a poster boy by any respect for, you know, the overvaluations. I mean, it's a good, I think this is a really good disruptor. It's a good business. The growth is tremendous. I think it's gone from when it first went public on a quarterly or annual basis, like 90 million in annual revenues up to the 2 billion range. So that's tremendous growth over eight to, you know, 10 quarters. But, you know, the valuation that you're paying in the market right now, and some of the analysts that kind of cropped up during this period, like these quasi analysts, or we call them like fanboys, sort of, or fangirls that are looking at these individual stocks, some of the ways they just, uh, they marry themselves to a particular stock and uh, eschew the underlying fundamentals. So that's kind of the context of what I'll be talking about in kind of a your stock our take segment on snowflake now so let's take a look at the company snowflake symbol s-n-o-w on the new york stock exchange trades around 182 dollars market cap is around 58 59 billion so the stock jumped 20 percent last week on the back of revenue growth that bested expectations for context it's important to point out here that even after this snapback snowflake shares are down 45 percent year to date and 54 percent uh, from their 2021 highs. So what does Snowflake do? They enable data, data storage and processing of analytic solutions that are faster, easier to use, and far more flexible than traditional offerings out in the market. Uh, the company's platform offers data cloud, which enables customers to consolidate data into a single source of truth to drive meaningful business insights, building data-driven applications and sharing data. Its platform is used by various organizations of sizes and range of industries. So what we saw after these uh, numbers, the, the revenue growth was tremendous there that we saw, uh, and I'll give them that. But in the wake of these, there was headlines out there that I see from some of these quasi analysts. And I'll read one of the headlines here. It says Snowflake smashes earnings with blistering growth. Well, except then you drop down to the actual earnings line or net income, you see that the company is still losing gobs of money. Yeah, I, I know that they are using earnings as, as a catch-all for the earnings or the, this, the, this press release, but you know, earnings to me and net income are different from revenues and they kind of seem to conflate these two together. It's been glossed over by many analysts to the point that you know, you look at no net income, you, you justify that by saying huge investments in RD for future growth. That is a, a it's a good theory. And I, and I understand that argument. But if I had a dime for every time uh, I've heard this, or every time I hear the company is going to be the next Amazon, I'd be doing these videos, I wouldn't even be doing these videos is what I'm trying to say, which of course, I love doing these videos. Huh? My point is that even a stock or business with tremendous revenue growth, and in again, Snowflake's case, it's staggeringly good growth. If it has negative earnings and is just breaking into cash flow, but it trades at over, say, 33 times, this is what uh, Snowflake trades at, 33 times enterprise value to sales. It's one of the only traditional multiples we can use to put a number on the stock. That's a really high multiple. So it's not surprising for me to see the stock if you look at a six-month chart on it. It shows declines. If you look at a one-year chart on this company, it shows declines. Since its IPO, it shows declines. This is despite the fact that consistently Wall Street analysts basically wet themselves with enthusiasm over this stock. I mean, if you look at it uh, right now, at present, the current consensus among 37 analysts covering the stock, 21 rank it as a buy, four as an outperform, 10 as a hold. So 95% suggest you own the stock. Zero rank it as underperform, but there's two cells on the stock, which is actually shocking um, to even see one cell here. And throughout all the declines that we've seen, there was basically between one and zero analysts ranking it as a sell. 
So what I'll call these quasi-analysts, these fanboys or analyst bloggers, I'm not sure what else to call them, but the curious part of the pandemic is the growth uh, before the growth in this area started before the pandemic, it kind of reached a fevered pitch in the pandemic. Um, they kind of show undying support for businesses, largely ignoring the underlying fundamentals, no matter what the story those underlying fundamentals are telling. I will, I'm going to quote directly from this report. One of the reports I'll use an example is this in a second. So many of these, um, you know, Analysts have been absolutely punished in these markets, beaten up worse than Brennan is on a weekly basis on this podcast, or Kathy Wood's returns look year to date. Um, it just doesn't seem to be sinking in, is what I'd say. In this report, this analyst went through all the numbers, did through did the cash flow analysis, saw the stock was still 30 to 50% overvalued based on the model, and yet still placed a buy rating on the stock. So the direct quote is, the only issue for me has to be the valuation of Snowflake, which has come down substantially, but is still slightly above my intrinsic fair value estimate. However, I will label the stock as a buy due to the business's quality and its cheap valuation relative to history. So this historical cheap number comes from the fact that it now trades at 33 times sales versus the insane multiple of 9.8 achieved and it's really only full public year as a traded stock. Snowflake went public in late 2020. So one to two years of full historical data is not enough to start making historical comparisons, particularly when that year is 2021, which is surely an outlier as a historical norm as broad valuations in tech were historically high. Now, the biggest point here for me is that everything must goes so well for Snowflake over the next two to five years for the stock to justify its current market value, its market cap of $59 billion. That if anything derails the growth uh, or the margins improving story, there is just zero margin of safety. Investors should not be creating a 15 to 25 core stock portfolio with a company of that profile. Love the growth, but valuations matter. Forget that at your Peril. Snowflake seems like a strong growth company. It is breaking into solid cash flow, which we like to see, but the valuation profile has too much risk if that's the type of profile of a company you want to stick with in your portfolio overall. So Good. it's the, the stocks trading below or sorry, above or or sorry, below the intrinsic value. What, what, what did you say there again? He has a buy on the stock, even though he thinks that technically it's overvalued right now. Is that correct? Yeah, technically it's overvalued. <laughs> so it's trading well above his historic uh, intrinsic yeah. value. Which is like, not this historic company, as you said, value. is 18 months, right? It's not like this company has yeah. Yes, years I mean, that's, of history, right? It's, that's it's the thing for me. During the highest... During yeah, the like peak high valuation high. period for, for software technology stock. Yeah, like I try to take in as many reports from as many different sources on companies. As, as, you know, I think it's a good exercise to do when you're looking at businesses. Uh, even if you totally disagree with it, I'd like to look at it and see what the point is there. But sometimes, like, like and I've seen this quite a bit uh, of late, the language that you see in there, like historical uh, a historical comparison and the stock's been trading for 18 months. Like it's just, it's, it's crazy. Like you can't have a historical comparison. And particularly when you're looking at any tech company that IPO'd over the last, you know, two years, making a historical comparison to the valuations, um, in 2021 is, is, is not Food good Christmas. practice right now. It's, it's, it's silly. So, uh, using that and saying a stock is cheap, because it doesn't trade at the 90 times sales multiple it did. And now it's 33 is, is, you know, is ripe to me. It's just, it just sounds silly, but you see, I've seen that in multiple, multiple, you know, analyst reports. And, you know, I, I just think you need, you need to trust the numbers more. I mean, the numbers that were calculated by this individual showed the stock was significantly overvalued and yet, Basically, I'm in love with the stock, so I continue to put a buy on it. I don't know how any other way you're going to put it other than that. I love the business. I love the business. Well, you know, there's many businesses that are great businesses that trade 
for high multiples for too long that won't make you any money in the market. If his outlook is, yeah, I think it'll be higher 20 years from now. Well, that's fine. But I mean, first of all, so many things are happening in the business between then, but that's not really a, a realistic investment horizon, right? So okay. I think I think a lot of things have to go right. It's not to say that Snowflake can't be an absolute disruptor. It will be. My point is, if that is your criteria for each of the 15 to 25 stocks you put in your portfolio, you're setting yourself up for disaster over the long term. Yeah. Yeah. That actually is a good segue into into my segment because I'm going to be talking about stock-based compensation. And there's no industry in the market um, that uses stock-based compensation more excessively than than software tech, specifically software, specifically SaaS. And I think within that group, specifically like the mid mid-size, not necessarily the mega caps like the Microsofts and Alphabets, but those mid-size software technology companies like um, like Snowflake. And it certainly has more of an impact on their underlying numbers because of their mm-hmm. size too, right? Yeah. yeah. Good. Let's get to that. Let's get to that then. Okay. So what's motivating this is we we received a comment on our YouTube page from a listener named Paul. He wanted us to talk about stock-based compensation, do a little a little segment on that. And this happens to be a subject that I've been looking into a fair bit recently. So I thought it was a great idea. I put together a couple of slides and we will discuss uh, what investors need to know about stock-based compensation. Okay, so first of all, what is stock-based compensation? So this is essentially uh, supplementing employee and executive compensation with equity awards. Um, Usually they're stock options or RSUs, restricted stock units. So essentially the way that it works is if you are a a current or prospective employee of a company, um, they're trying to put together a good compensation package for you. Part of that package is essentially going to be um, stock grants that will vest in tranches over periods of several years. And what the idea of this is that it's, it aligns the employee with the success of the company. The higher the stock price goes of the company, the more money the employee is going to make. So they're incentivized to essentially do a great job and be part of a great team. Companies love stock-based compensation because it can be treated as a non-cash cost. So in many cases, it accounts for a significant portion of employee compensation, yet there's no actual cash outflow, uh, at least initially. Um, and quite often companies just com- and analysts just completely ignore it. So stock-based compensation, first of all, can be a very effective uh, way of compensating your employees. And there are a lot of good things about it, but it also poses a lot of problems for investors. Um, for example, a lot of companies, particularly in the in the software technology, mid-size, high-growth software companies, a lot of these companies substantially overused stock-based compensation or SBC. Um, most companies, including analysts and some investors, treat SBC as a non-cash expense. And they, so they completely ignore it. Um, when they're determining adjusted earnings, they will ignore it and factor it out. Um, when they're when they're looking at cash flow, they won't consider it. Um, however, excessive use of stock-based compensation can underestimate expenses. It can overstate earnings and cash flow, and it can also cause significant share dilution as well. Um, in addition, some employees may start to demand more compensation, more of their compensation in cash and less in stock uh, if the share price returns don't meet their expectations. So this is certainly something that um, that could be an issue for companies going forward, given share price returns have not been as good as they have been over the past decade. Now, stock-based compensation and how it should be treated is that's open to wide debate. In one school, um, there are people, typically the companies, a lot of analysts that just say you should ignore it. It's a non-cash expense. Um, it doesn't go through the operating section, the cash flow statement. So you should just basically ignore it. On the other side of the fence, the other school are people who say this is a real expense and it needs to be considered just as any other cash-based expense. So one very famous investor who is part of the latter camp is Warren Buffett. And he's made many quotes on stock-based compensation in the past. I've provided a couple of them here. Um, One is it's become common for managers to tell their owners, the investors, to ignore certain expense items that are all too real. Stock-based compensation is the most egregious example. So what he's saying here is that this is a real expense. It can't be ignored. And it's, in fact, one of the most common ways that companies inflate their earnings is by ignoring stock-based compensation expense. 
He also went on to say Wall Street analysts often play their part in this charade too, parroting the phony compensation, ignoring earnings figures fed to them by management. And then he goes on to say this may be due to um, incompetence or just being part of the uh, just being just being part of the ignorance um, when it comes to stock-based compensation. But really, what he's saying here is that you cannot ignore it. Um, it is a major issue. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at a specific example of a company that uses stock-based compensation, a lot of it, and just see how this affects the presentation of earnings and some of the things that investors need to be made aware of. So the case study is going to be Palantir Technologies. Uh, this is a very well-known um, software technology company, SaaS, software as a service company, highly touted over the past couple of years, um, high growth, recurring revenue, basically all the things that have been, that have been attractive, that have, that have attracted technology investors, investors in general over the past several years. So taking a look at some select financials from Palantir, um, from their fiscal 2021 financial report, you can see that revenue about 1.5 billion in revenue for the year, adjusted income from operations, 473 million and adjusted net income of $308 million. So all of this looks really good. I mean, you've got significant revenue, you've got high margins, you've got good profitability, but wait, these are figures, these are adjusted figures, adjusted income from operations, adjusted net income, and these ignore the stock-based compensation expense. So what do these figures look like when we include the stock-based compensation as Warren Buffett, for example, would have us do? So off of revenues of 1.5 billion, after we include stock-based ex compensation expense, the company actually has income from operations of negative 411 million and a net loss of 520 million. So they went from significant positive profit margins, good profitability to a substantial net loss and negative margins purely because of the way that stock-based compensation is treated. And when we look at the company's stock-based compensation for the year, 780 million, almost 780 million or 50% of the company's revenue in stock-based compensation expense. So that is by far the largest expense that this company has on their income statement. And in many cases, it's really being completely ignored. When you look at analyst reports on um, forecasted earnings, generally those are gonna be ignored. When you look at the company's own calculation of adjusted net income or non-GAAP non net income, generally this is going to be ignored. So what we did is we did a little bit of research. We analyzed um, a, a group of 50 high growth US technology companies took a look at their stock-based compensation expense. Um, so these are some of the um, fastest growing technology companies in the US market, um, many of them approaching profitability or approaching um, cash flow or having significant cash flow. But 70% of this group were paying over 10% of the revenue in the form of stock-based compensation. The average for this group was 16% of revenue. Now, you might look at this and say, well, you know, 10% of revenue, that's not too bad. But you know, if you have a 20 to 30% net profit margin, that's a substantial net profit margin, much higher than most industries could ever hope to have. So 10%, if you have a 20% net profit margin, after you're ignoring 10% of your expenses, then really like half of your expenses or half of your profit is, is essentially not real. Um, but some companies, some companies use this much more aggressively. So the top five companies in the list, Snowflake being on this list, Palantir as well, uh, from 30 to 56% of their revenue is, is um, stock-based compensation, their expenses of stock-based compensation as a percentage of revenue, sorry. Uh, so that's a substantial factor when you're looking at these companies and it's important to consider um, for a number of reasons. Now, the, re the things you really have to consider as an investor when you're looking at this and how to treat stock-based compensation is the main thing that it's going to cause in terms of a cost to your company is stock dilution. So using stock-based compensation is really the same as issuing new shares to the market. There's a cost, right? You're just, you're delaying that cost. It's not a cash cost today, but there is still a cost. So you cannot ignore stock-based compensation completely as an expense. And this is especially true when companies make excessive use of it. Um, now, when we looked at that 50 company group, what we found is that a lot of the companies that were using it excessively were companies that didn't have much in terms of profitability and cash flow. When you're looking at the large companies, the Alphabets and Microsofts, it's much less of an issue. But if when you're looking at the high growth, um, 
high revenue growth, low profitability, low cash flow, mid-size technology software companies, stock-based compensation is a major factor. And it's important to know how much a company is using when analyzing their profitability. Now, one thing I think that's also important to look out for is how are employees going to view their compensation if the share price performance of their of the company that they work for does not meet their expectations. So for example, they join a company at the peak of the market. They've seen that this company has had returns, um, you know, 20, 30%, 50% share, share gains per year over the last several years. This hasn't been uncommon in, in the in the software technology space. Um, they leverage a significant portion of their compensation to what they believe is the future share price potential of their company. And now we're in a situation where many of these companies are actually down 20, 30, 50% or more. So looking in the future, I think that it's very likely that employees, unless these companies start um, skyrocketing again in share price, it's very likely that many employees are going to go to their, to their employers and demand more of their compensation and cash as opposed to stock. So that'll be something to keep an eye out for. And this can be a very difficult situation for companies that aren't generating a lot of cash flow because they simply won't have the money to pay it. So it's something that uh, we definitely need to consider in a when looking at a company, um, not something that we want to just ignore. Now, yeah, no, Ryan, it's, it's a you, good you, argument. Yeah, I, I just want to say you had mentioned that the that the listener had posted a question about um, a specific company as well. Do you remember the company? What, which one that was? Because I missed that. Yeah, Magnet it was forensics. Magnet Mag forensic on the TSX. Maybe next week we can take a look at Magnet in terms of specifically stock based compensation. I mean, you know, you could take a quick look now, but I mean, you know, like it's probably, you know, you want to give it a little more justice. Look at it. Let's uh, let's let's leave fully. it till next week. We'll yeah, do a yeah, quick good one idea. On next week. But yeah. I mean, I think it was a great summary. I mean, it, yeah. stock based compensation is part of the compensation package, and um, you know, if it, it, if not there, it would be part of the you know payroll expense, right? Like it, at some point, it's got it would come into. It would come into that, and then it would be an expense, and it would reduce cash flow, reduce earnings. So, you know, it's definitely something we have to pay attention to. I mean, I would like. Well, you think you have, company, you have a company paying thirty to fifty percent of their it, revenue? Yeah. It's the percent. And, if it's five percent versus fifty percent, it's a big. You pay more attention, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and like the. Uh, the it is issuing more shares. Like I look at the flip side of that. There's like a company last week. This is a tiny small cap company that we recommend, you know, in our in our Canadian small cap portfolio. But the company's called Biosent. Um, they've been buying back shares. Now some people, most companies have a normal course issuer bid, but this company actually uses theirs and buys shares out of cash. Like, and if I looked at the numbers, and it, it kind of is shocking that since 2018, for example. They have bought back two million of the shares, so they've eliminated two million shares, just over two million shares, essentially. Um, what that has done, and to put that, you know, to give you a number that'll smack you in the face, that has eliminated uh, those shares. But their earnings, their trailing twelve-month earnings, is fifty cents. If they wouldn't have done those buybacks, it would have been forty-three cents per share. So you can see the impact of those. Uh, uh, even if the company didn't earn any more money, just stayed flat, their earnings on a per share basis for you as a shareholder went up substantially because of that buyback. So, you know, like this flip side can happen if you just keep issuing shares and issuing shares into a share based uh, compensation plan or stock based compensation plan. It dilutes existing shareholders. So it is a cost in that respect. It, exactly. That's a real cost. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another point uh which i would like to go through is who is the uh, compensation going to is it the ceo is it just a general employee stock plan because if it's the ceo or any of the c-suites it can give them really short sighted views so if they're owning 10 percent of the company they want to pump that up they're gonna do whatever short-term methods in either as accounting they could be flipping some earnings shifting things which can be legal can be illegal or they can just do operational things which will push earnings up in the short term, sell off some of their stocks. They may make it out with their eggs. And it leaves pretty much the existing shareholders out of money. They're, they're, they're the ones yeah. losing out. 
Yeah, and so, so the answer so to that would be both. Would be both. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's typically the executives and the and the employees. So certainly, when you're looking at a technology company, a lot of that is going to go to the the software engineering developer team, but also also the executives as well. Yeah. So we would if if a massive percentage just went to the executives and a small percentage went to the development team. I mean, you're going to probably have less loyalty there, and and they could have those skewed decision making. So. You know, knowing who it's going to, you know, if it's balanced out a little better, maybe you have, you know, better company loyalty, people are staying longer, maybe that's a good thing. So probably the structure is, is a good thing to look into too, as well. For sure. All right, well, let's move on to, we can do a, Brennan, you want to go into your stock, our take on uh, Relic Health. And I asked yeah. Brennan, I asked Ashley Aaron, the only thing I think of when I hear relic is relic from Beachcombers. So if any listeners remember the old uh, CB Seashell Beachcombers, we're showing that for anybody on the podcast right now, an image of relic. And he's a, <laughs> he's a good looking man. That's all I can say. <laughs> Let's be honest. But that's all I think of. And I think I pointed this out in 2018 when it was a dog. And Eric said, "What? Who the hell is Relic?" And he did at least know Beachcombers. I, I know. The same I, thing I this remember time. the show. It's 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 not <laughs> something you know. Like I said, it's not like you're asking about the A Team or anything, right? Oh, it's, or Face from the A Team. You remember no. Face's face? Of course. Right, from the A Team. B. A. Baracus. Look at these two are just Murdoch. glazed over. They're like, who the hell? Are <laughs> the Let me A-team? get into my segment already. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I love it when a plan comes together. All right, let's 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 go into your stock. Our take on Relic. Thank Health. you. It's time we answer a question on your stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. Yes, so this came in from Kevin via Facebook and he says, you know, hoping to get RHT or Relic Health on the TSXV reviewed. It was a past dog of the week back in 2018. Uh, So yeah, Relic Health Technologies Inc. RHT on the TSX Venture, currently trading at a price of 50 cents and has a market cap of about $97 million. So the company is a telemedicine provider that develops virtual care solutions for the healthcare market. It offers its iUgo care platform, a software as a solution that allows patients to receive care in the home. So like I said, we did last review Relic in late 2018 as a dog of the week after it suffered a severe decline of over 85% over the course of that year. And the reason for the decline Ryan pointed out was that the company was putting up severe losses on some of the contracts that it had recently secured, losing upward of $3.9 million in one of the four quarters that the contracts uh, produced produced revenue in. Um, And remember, at this time, the business was completely contract driven, so they didn't have any SaaS revenue coming in. So where are we now? Beginning in 2021, uh, once the company switched from primarily a hardware business to a software uh, as a service model, the company began posting some consistent revenue growth quarter over quarter, now with trailing sales of about $10.5 million, but still a trailing net loss of about $9.4 million. I will say, though, that its most recent quarter, Q3 of 2022, the business lost just $800,000. That is uh, in comparison to the previous seven quarters where all of the net losses were uh, well above $2 million. Um, Looking forward now, revenue should continue to grow considering the company has been signing new contracts. And with about 42% of revenue now coming in from services, which is recurring, the company should, in theory, over the long run, have an easier time breaking into consistent profitability than compared to back in 2018 when we covered it, where it was very, very contract driven. Now, right now, right now, the company has a healthy balance sheet with over 600K in net cash, but ultimately shareholders have been taking the brunt of the net losses through dilution, kind of stemming back to our previous conversation. Now where the company has over 189 million shares outstanding. Right now, the company still trades with a trailing price to sales multiple of nine times. And I understand by you know quoting that the, the internet is going to beat me up because you know there will be some revenue growth looking forward due to uh, new contracts. Um, but one thing that I would like to note is you know looking at their investor presentation growth forecasts, uh, they wanted to achieve profitability in 2021, which as far as I can tell, they haven't achieved. 
They're looking to generate $40 million in revenue for the 2022 fiscal year. They just posted their Q3. Uh, and right now they're you know nowhere close to achieving that. They would have to uh, post, I believe, $33 million in revenue in the Q4 of 2022 to come in line with that. And they also uh, you know, noted that in 2023, they're looking at posting about $65 million uh, in revenue, which you know, I don't believe that they will be able to achieve. I think that these were some lofty targets that were put out there, um, you know, and yeah, they're kind of a, a shot in the dark almost. So to conclude, the company was losing a lot of money in 2018. Uh, and was very contract driven, which brought the initial stock euphoria built around securing a few contracts all tumbling down, which Ryan covered. The company switched to a SaaS model to get revenue consistency with good growth and more growth uh, looking to come, uh, which is good from those new contracts. However, the company was losing money then and continues to lose money now. Relic does appear to be on better track to potentially break into profitability, but with a trailing price to sales multiple of nine times, currently behind schedule to reach its targets and more dilution likely to come in the next few quarters to keep the lights on, we would essentially stay on the sidelines with this story. Yeah, I, I mean, I think it's a good summary. I mean, I, I think that uh, the company, you know, it's just it's uh, continuing to issue shares just under 200 million, I think you said, in terms of shares, yeah. outstanding. Uh, is it is it nine million they've done for the nine month period? Is essentially revenues is, is um, it around that range? Yeah, I've got yeah, I've got to trailing of ten point five. So I think they did about nine. Yeah, nine I mean that's in the last in this you know, year so far. Significant multiple uh, on a sales basis for a company that's unprofitable, not really close to profitability right now. Um, you know, I, I, you'd have to see a lot more to make it anywhere near our criteria at this point. You know, and this is off the top of my head too. So the nine months of this year, they've done, you know, like you said, about nine million in revenue. If my member, if my memory serves me correct, I'm pretty sure I was looking. Uh, they were providing share based compensation of, I believe, about six million during that same, you know, nine month period. So with a company like this, I mean, again, tying it back to that share based compensation uh, com conversation, you know, that's quite a bit for you know a company that uh, is still you know, losing a lot of money, even if we adjust those, that, that dilution back. Yeah. Over you know, 60% of revenue net income. Exactly. And in, in stock-based yeah. compensation expense. That's, yeah. Yeah. You I know, mean, I like, and you're not going to maintain those employees using stock if the, if the stock price doesn't go anywhere. So eventually they're going to say, I need more cash or they're going to say, I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah, no, I'm I'm looking here too. Is that this is the Q3 was the last quarter, I believe, like Correct. six point two six million for the nine yeah, months. That's, that's yeah, that's yeah. So I mean, I was even overstating it there at nine, like six point two million. That that's a, a high price to sales multiple, like you said, for yeah. a company that's really not close to profitability and uh, you know has a lot of a great deal of shares outstanding for a company of its size. Likely, you know. In these situations, you see a rollback at some point to, to yeah. get the share price higher so they can continue to use the shares as currency to make further acquisitions potentially. So maybe that's part of the playbook going forward. Yeah. You know, it's and, just speculation, but, you know, you often see that. And like, I mean, uh, the, the silver lining here, I mean, it's still not a company that we would recommend or touch, but I will say the silver lining is, you know, they've got away from that completely contract driven lumpiness. They're starting to get some SaaS revenue. They are, they, they appear to be making, you know, or they're in the right direction. Um, but still, you know, we would have to sit back and uh, watch the story unfold before we would touch it. Yeah. So we'll give you an idea. If they did 6 million in not just revenues in the corner, if they did it in earnings, right? They, you know, you'd still look at the company to be somewhat potentially, you know, maybe starting to have value there with the growth that they had. But I mean, you know, they're, they're doing 6 million in revenues for that period nothing close to earnings. It is improving in terms of where they were in terms of losses in the past. But when you have almost 200 million shares outstanding, you need a hell of a lot more earnings. They don't have any earnings right now, but you need that more to the bottom line to produce a per share figure that would start to make the stock look like it had good value. Awesome. Hopefully that makes sense. Okay, let's let's move on to our uh, our our, sorry, stars and dogs segments. Brett's going to take those. The first one is uh, a dog on Conoco Phillips. 
star. Star on Conical Phillips. Sorry, it's the star. Yeah, yeah. I he's, just like. I liked it. I remember. I like to go out. The cops with the and the dogs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. No. We'll, we'll, I'll leave it on a dog. Though. Clearly. You'll, you'll figure out one day. All right. Someday. I don't want to. Uh, I like it. I like it better when I don't know. And Conoco Phillips is our star of the week. Well-known oil and gas company. From our stars and dogs segment, it's time for this week's star. Star. All right. It is no secret that oil has been a bullish winner this year. And Conoco Phillips, symbol COP or COP on the New York Stock Exchange, has been a major beneficiary of this. ConocoPhillips is an oil exploration and production company based out of Houston, Texas. The company explores, produces, and transports crude oil, bitumen, natural gas, natural gas liquids, and liquefied natural gas around the world. It is operating centers in the U.S., Canada, Europe, the Middle East, North Africa, as well as Asia. The company's strong Q2 earnings, as well as a rebound in energy price after a July dip, has allowed the company's shares to grow 19% over the last month and 54% year-to-date to the current $113. The company had a Q2 profit of $5.1 billion, or $3.96 on a per-share basis, compared to $2.1 billion, or $1.55 per share for Q2 2021. The company has declared a dividend of $0.46 cents per share, as well as a variable return of cash, commonly known as a special dividend, of $1.40 per share. In addition, is looking to repurchase $2.3 billion in shares. Unlike some companies in the sector, ConocoPhillips does not hedge its exposure to oil or any other sort of energy, which has allowed it to reap the rewards of the surging energy prices. On the other hand, the company is lowering shareholder risk as it's returning its extreme profits and share and cash to the shareholders. The alternative being is investing higher into pro- projects, which carries more risk, especially as we're looking 20 years in the future for these projects. Even at the heightened price, though, the company has a trailing dividend yield of 3.9%. ConocoPhillips does carry a net cash position, though, of $8.8 billion, which is lower than the previous quarter's net debt position of 11 0.7 billion. The company has reduced its debt by $3 billion since it's announced its goal of reducing debt by a total of $5 billion. The company is currently trading at a trailing PE of 10 times, which is on the high end of its historical valuations end. Unlike Snowflake, it has more than a year and a half to decades behind it. Going forward, an investor needs to be well aware of the macroeconomic risk of oil and gas, of course, as well as how the company is managing its cash inflows and outflows. The recent boon in oil and gas prices, as well as strong returns of capital to shareholders, is why ConocoPhillips is the star of the week. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely powered by those uh, gains in energy or energy prices. And our dog of the week Brett's got that one too. Yeah, our, yeah, we will go straight right into that. The dog. It is the our dog this is, time, right? I'm yes, right. yes, yes, yes. No, we're not doing you. two stars. It's, it's a starry <laughs> sky, but there's only one star in ours. Yes. From our stars and dog segment, it's time for this week's dog. <laughs> All right, the dog of the week is Intel, symbol I N T C on the Nasdaq. Intel is a manufacturer of computing components, most normal, most notably the central processing unit, better known as the CPU, and most recently its foray into dedicated graphics processing units, or GPUs. Intel stock has fallen roughly 10% in the last month, and 38% year-to-date to the $33 it currently sits at. Intel's recent Q2 earnings did not have high expectations, and yet they still came in extremely short, having only a non-GAAP, EPS of 29 cents compared to the analyst consensus consensus of 69 cents compared to $1.28 for the same quarter in 2021. Revenue has also dropped 17% year over year to $15.3 billion. Intel's revenue has fallen in its largest two segments, client computing, which is your consumer computer, so your desktop, if you have Intel, that's what client computing is, as well as data center and AI, which is their large-scale computing units. While its smaller segments have picked up some of the slack in revenue, 
Operating income has fell across the board with a small exception of Mobileye posting a tiny, tiny increase and is more or less a blip on the overall structure of the company. The top and bottom line decline is attributed to declining economic conditions and more concerning, a failure in operational performance. A shift away from Intel in the x86 marketplace is taking place. x86 is the type of processor architecture that both Intel and primary competitor AMD use for their CPUs. According to the research firm Mercury Research, it estimates Intel's market share has dropped to 68.6% from 77.5% for Q2 2022 versus Q2 2021, respectively. This market share drop is in addition to the overall market declining 30% for the desktop CPUs, which is their largest segment. Looking past the fall in the CPU market, Intel's recent foray into GPUs has been anything but optimistic. The initial launch of the GPUs has been delayed and delayed, and now has launched into a significantly weaker market than what they could have if they met the initial launch dates earlier this year when GPU prices were going crazy. This has culminated in a drop in price, leading to a trailing PE of only 8 times and a forward PE of 14 times based on Intel's own management forecast of $2.30 for the fiscal year 2022. The trailing and forward are quite low compared to peers and itself historically. Looking forward, Intel does have some hope in the long term, moving back to its fabrication facilities, commonly known as fabs, with support from the US and European governments, which I'm sure Aaron's going to have a couple words about. But any boom, boom from these will not be seen financially for at least a few more years because they take a few years to build and then a few more years to actually have those returns realized. Until then, Intel is in a precarious position as its market share has been continuously slammed into a weakening market, which is why it is our dog of the week. Good summary. Yeah, Intel is a company I've, I've looked at it several times over, over the years. And, you know, it's it's almost like your quintessential technology value stock, right? I mean, it, it sometimes during certain years, performances look not too bad. It's always ch- traded at a, at a cheap valuation relative to the sector. But what I found is, is they've just never over the years been able to produce much in terms of consistent uh, growth and revenue and cash flow. And they seem to have a really, they, they, they've They've missed the ball on a lot of things. Like they, they have a bad reputation for having missed the ball on smart devices. Um, they've they've lost market share to competitors like AMD, as you mentioned. So there's a few things going forward that look good. And I think that the chip space, the computer chip space is interesting. A lot of companies are investing heavily in future production capacity because there's such a chip shortage right now. And then there's also a trend to reshore um, the production of computer chips and semiconductors back into North America, as opposed to having it all in in Asia. Um, but if I were to pick a chip company, I, I don't think it would be Intel. I think that there's other interesting businesses out there. You're going to pay a higher valuation for them, certainly, but they're higher quality companies with a better track record of being competitive. So yeah. I- Intel, uh, do you want to comment uh, briefly on the deal Intel had with uh, Brookfield Infrastructure? You know, there's week, not really, it's not really You want to get that out to clients? With respect for... to, no, I mean, it's not really relevant. So there, yeah. there's a, recently a deal announced, Brookfield Infrastructure, which is a company that we cover. Um, this is a global infrastructure company. They invest in a lot of different um, types of assets that are, you know, stable ports, toll roads. Um, you know, electrical power, other types of power transmission, data centers. So they're they're investing. They're doing a major investment um, into a um, new plant that Intel is building. As as Brett mentioned, they're they're um, increasing their their capacity. They're building. I think they're investing about fifteen billion dollars in this plant. So um, this is going to be, I think, significant to Brookfield. I don't know how significant it is really to the investment yeah, thesis on on Intel. Um, it'd be more of a Brookfield thing. Um, but for Brookfield, we think it's quite interesting. And it's more diversification for that company as well. Totally. I Good. will add, um, for the fabrication facilities, if you're wondering how lucrative this market can be, Taiwan Semiconductors, or TSMC, which is the leading manufacturer based on Taiwan, is worth $430 billion for the market cap, which is about three times Intel, a bit over it actually now. Yeah, and I think they have about 
Taiwan Semiconductor. I believe they have about a 60% global market share. I could be wrong there, but it's, it's close, right? Because they're, they're by far the largest. Um, and then you have, you know, production capacity in South Korea and Japan and China, a little bit in the United States, but not that much. Um, the trend now is to reshore a lot of that to North America for national security reasons. And as well as they're the ones who are producing your your current processor chips. So Intel does actually rely on them. NVIDIA does, AMD does as well, because they're the ones that can produce that high end, which a lot of the ones in other places around the world are on legacy nodes. So if you've ever heard 14 nanometer was the common one Intel failed on, these have less of a meaning now, but they're good to gauge what each country and each facility is still producing. And TSMC is just still above Intel's looking to catch up, but it's more requiring TSMC to fail than anything at this point. Yeah, once once one gets ahead, mm-hmm. it's harder. It's then harder to to then catch up and to move ahead of them. They just have to, you know, at that point, just maintain the lead, and that's that sounds like that's what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right. Well, that's a good discussion, a loaded show this week. Uh, I'd like to thank our listeners. Keep uh, smashing the subscribe button below. Going, If you're listening on the podcast, go to iTunes, uh, rate and review us on there and continue to subscribe. Keep your questions coming in to segments like Your Talk, Our, your stock, our Take, Your Talk, Our Steak. I want a steak right now after that. Now, and, and keep them coming in. And if you got any stocks you want us to debate, uh, we'll debate those on an upcoming segment. Keep your comments coming in to our YouTube show. Check us out on YouTube to see our uh, faces for radio and leave your comments there. And we'll answer your questions out of there as well. And again, I'd like to wish everybody profitable investing. Thank you. Great. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.